Hey. All right. All right. All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open to Daniel chapter 4 as we get started. Um, the uh, first night that we were able to, thank you, Benjamin. The first night that we hung out together, we kind of talked about um, a little bit of a pact that we were going to make throughout the week. And the pact kind of went like this. The idea is I'm going to, as I get up here and teach and talk through biblical ideas, that my commitment to you was simple. That when I'm talking to you about biblical things, that I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like your generation deserves it. I feel like you're old enough to understand it. I feel like I'm going to talk to you like adults because... I think the idea from Christianity and from scripture is that you're expected to give an adult response, even at your age. And so my commitment to you is to do that. And, and, and my hope was that your commitment to me was really engaging in the conversation, writing down questions. And I really feel like there's a lot of distractions last night. And I feel like you guys just kind of powered through it. And so that like meant a lot to me. And it just reinforces that you guys are engaged and ready to, to hear kind of tough stuff. Um, so I just really appreciate that. That could have been a disaster. And um, because of your focus and attention, that just meant a lot to me, even as a communicator. I was sharing some pretty like intimate life stuff. And you staying focused uh, was a really great way of loving me. So thank you guys for doing that. Um, Daniel chapter 4, as we get into it. And tonight um, is going to be another hard one. It's going to be one that's probably, I would say, in the modern church, uh, this is probably a part of scripture that it's really unpopular to teach. Um, there was this notion, I think, that took place at one point. If you look at the Old Testament, prophets kind of always said the same thing. Like, J, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Naam, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Prophets had this way of coming into a territory, and they acted kind of like a doctor. I want you guys to think about this analogy here for a second. Imagine, if you will... My um, dad, a few years back, had stage four esophageal cancer. So he had um, cancer in his lymph nodes and his esophagus. And I remember thinking, getting that phone call that day, where um, he's fine now. He's in total remission, which is awesome. But when, when the phone call first came in, it, like, uh, um, my, uh, my wife and I had just had our second kid and so we were kind of in a crazy state. And um, my brother, my older brother had just got married. My younger brother was moving towards marriage. And all of our lives were kind of moving and zipping and everything. And then you get this phone call. And my dad says, hey, I don't want you to worry. But I've got stage four esophageal cancer. And we're not quite sure on the prognosis or how this is going to turn out. And it paused everyone's life. I remember sitting there and just crying. I remember um, our family kind of being rocked by that. It, that meant a change in a lot of stuff for us. It meant a change in our plans. It meant getting rid of some of the things on our calendar that we were otherwise going to do. And so I imagine in that moment, I, I imagine kind of like the prophets of old and I think the truth tellers of our day, um, which is when you approach the Bible, you do so, especially the topic of sin, which we'll be talking about tonight, kind of like a doctor staring at a screen where someone's got cancer. I want you to think of that moment. Imagine being a physician, imagine being a doctor, and you have just ordered an MRI or some kind of a scan on your patient, and when it comes back, they've got stage four esophageal cancer, which for a lot of people is deadly, right? Or even imagine something worse. Imagine that they've got, stage, uh, they've got a stage of cancer and they've got a type of cancer that if they don't work on it right now, it's gonna take them over. Like, my dad's cancer was metastasizing, which means it was spreading throughout his body, and if you don't eradicate it right now, immediately, it will spread and it will be incurable. 
So that doctor's got a decision. The doctor looks at the scan, and if the doctor starts to figure out what are the implications of this news, the doctor might think to himself, oh, man, this guy is 60 years old. He's got a wife. He's got three sons. This is my dad. My dad's got three sons. This one's got two kids. This, you know what? It would really throw a wrench in their plans if they found out that their whole lives had to stop because this guy's cancer. Not just to mention that. The process that he has to go through, he's going to need chemotherapy. He's going to need radiation treatment. He's going to need to drive from Bakersfield down to USC Medical Center. That's where my parents live uh, for like, you know, three or four times a week. That's going to be a whole lot of gas money. It's going to be a huge inconvenience. And I know when I tell them, they're going to get really upset, right? You don't tell someone they're possibly going to die and they just skip on their merry way. It's going to make them really sad. Uh, it, It might hurt their feelings. And so in the middle of all that stuff, you've got this decision as a physician. Your decision as a physician is either to look at the scan and go, ooh, I know the truth, but come on, I don't wanna be unpopular. You see the scan, you see the cancer, you know the treatment, you know it's gonna hurt, you know it's gonna be painful, but you look at the scan and you go, but his life's going so well. And I, I like that he likes me, right? I'm Dr. Fun, everyone thinks I'm great, but I don't wanna be the guy who's like, oh, you got cancer, you gotta go get chemo, it's gonna ruin your whole life. So the doctor, instead of saying, hey, Mr. Hilkin, I got, a new, I, I got something I need to tell you. You've got stage four esophageal cancer. If you don't take care of it right now, it's going to kill you. This is the treatment that we need to undergo. This is the only hope that you have. You need to get started right away. That's gonna cause them to cry. It's gonna cause them to freak out. And that's one of your decisions. That's one of your options. You looking at the scan, knowing the prognosis, knowing the diagnosis, knowing the treatment, you can walk in like a good doctor would and say, you've got cancer, it's gotta be eliminated stat. Or you can take the approach that says, ah, I'm not here to make anyone feel weird. So you walk in and you know the cancer and you're like, I don't know, you know, it, maybe our machine messed up. You know, I don't, I don't know. Lollipop, I think, you, I think you're gonna be fine. You know, I looked at some scans and stuff like that and I'm not really concerned about what I'm looking at uh, and I really don't wanna offend you, so you should go on. If a doctor ever did that, and it found out, we found out later on that my dad died of esophageal cancer because the doctor didn't say anything. What would we think about that doctor? Good doctor, bad doctor? Bad doctor, why? We would say he's a bad doctor because of one reason. He knew the truth and he withheld it. And in withholding the truth, he did not allow the patient to get better. This is kind of the p- position that we find ourselves in as pastors a lot of the time. And this is where I find myself tonight. I feel like there's a cancer screen for a lot of us sitting in this room. It's called sin. And sin, just like cancer, is a terminal illness and it needs to be eradicated. Now, what's much more comfortable for me and probably for you is if I opened up to like the Psalms and I'm all, let's sing along. And we all had a fun little sing along thing and we are like, yay, this is fantastic. And we're all like, what's your favorite gift from God? Gravity, me too, yay, what about you? Toothpaste, fantastic. And we could all list like our favorite things that God has given us and we could do like the hallelujah, hallelujah, praise ye the Lord game and it would just be a good old time. We could do some VBS songs and we just have a rootin' tootin', you know, little throw down here. That's, but here's the issue with that. The issue with that is where we find ourselves in the text in Daniel chapter four is a man named Nebuchadnezzar who God gives a decree against, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are so filthy in sin. 
You are so absolutely covered in the sin of pride and arrogance and self-involvement and self-indulgence and idolatry. You've got a bad case, man. I've looked at your screen, and if you don't change something right now, it's going to end in death. And here's what Daniel the prophet tells him. Daniel chapter 4. We saw it in the skit this morning, which I have just really enjoyed. And here's what it says. And Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. What the heck does this all mean? Daniel's like, I don't want to tell him, right? He's got the, he's got the doctor's dilemma. Oh, if I tell him the truth, he's going to be really upset. But if I don't, then I'm going to be the guy that withholds truth. And I don't want to be that guy. That's how I feel. One day, just like all of you, I'm going to meet God face to face. And the book of James says this, not many of you should try to be teachers of the word, my dear brothers, for any of you who try to teach the word of God inappropriately will be held to a stricter judgment than those that don't. So in other words, my trial before God is going to be a little bit more intense than your trial before God, because when I stand up here, I claim to be speaking the very words of God. All your pastors do. Everyone who teaches you the, the word of God has placed themselves under stricter judgment up against the same law that you are held up against, but we are, we are held in a higher standard because of the fact that we stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. So when I meet God someday and I come under judgment, I'm comfortable with God saying, Chris, that was really intense, man. You really just kind of told him exactly how it is, and you offended a lot of people. And I'm going to go, Jesus, that's what truth was. That's what your Bible said. I'm sorry if I offend anyone. Keys to my mansion, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> and then I'll go, and I'll celebrate forever and eternity. I am not going to see Jesus face to face and have him go, the, the cancer screen was right there. You had a room full of seven, 800 junior high students who had a bad case, who were terminal. And you sat there like some doofy doctor saying, oh, I don't see what's going on. I can't do it. I won't. I won't stand before the royal throne and have God go, you didn't tell him truth. So that's my commitment to you. My commitment to you is to tell you the truth and let you make an adult decision in response. Here's what... He says, Daniel makes the same conclusion. He says, oh no, I gotta tell him what's going on. Verse 24 of chapter four. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against you, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You're gonna eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and give you anything he wishes and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. So Daniel says, all right, the Lord has told me if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't repent in humility, you will bow in humiliation. If you don't respond in your own volition, in humility, and bow the knee to God, God will bow your knee to him. This is what Roxy just quoted when she was, when she was singing. Uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, she was quoting from verses 5 and continuing, which says this. All of, you should, all of you as Christians in the church should have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Then, as a servant being found in human likeness, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? 
so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow and tongue confess above, under, and on the earth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does that tell us? It means on the last day, every knee will bow. The difference is, the choices that you make here on planet earth while you are alive, you may either volitionally, in your own will, choose to bow your knee to God and say, you are king and I am not, or you will live your life saying, I am king and you are not, and on that last day when you meet the real king face to face, your knee will be bowed for you. And this is what Daniel's saying, bow the knee. Your life is a disaster. Look at your kingship. You can't even retain your own kingdom. But God loves you. God knows you. God sees you. He is sovereign and he's a good king. And you want to bow to him. And if you don't, you're committing treason against him. And you don't want to do that. That's sin on your record. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll take my chances for myself. And exactly what he says happens. 12 months later, verse 29, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace, he thought to himself, man, I've built a great empire, haven't I? By my power and for the glory of my majesty. What does Nebuchadnezzar's name mean, do you remember? It's Nebu will protect my crown. That's a challenge already to God. And now he walks on the, 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 the top of his whole empire and he says, look at this that I have built. Who could possibly take me down? Even as these words were on his lip, verse 31, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King, I love how he says his name. This is what is decreed for you, O he who cannot have his throne taken because of Nebu. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live among the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox for seven years until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, King Nebuchadnezzar, what was said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people. He got on his hands and knees. He ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven and his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his fingernails like the claws of a bird. So Daniel is trying to tell him, you have a bad case. You don't, you don't recognize what's coming for you and I'm trying to, just like a doctor, tell you what's happening, right? In, in the book of John chapter 10, Jesus uses this extended analogy where he says, Jesus is speaking of himself and he says, I am a good shepherd, okay? And what does a shepherd do? If sheep are all walking towards a cliff, does a shepherd go, their body, their choice? That cliff, I don't know, maybe it's a soft cliff. I don't, I suppose maybe they'll, no, no. If you're a good shepherd, you take that, you know that little crook at the end of a shepherd's staff? That's to yank sheep from the edge to go, no, 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 you're a moron. You don't know what you're doing, right? The most common way, listen, this is important. The most common way that the scripture talks about us as people who wander away from God is as sheep. Sheep are the most non-self-reliant animals in the whole animal kingdom. If you, if a sheep doesn't have a shepherd, it dies, you want to know why? Because its hair just keeps growing. It needs someone to fix it, right? It's like the only animal in all the animal kingdom that needs human intervention, that needs a shepherd. Isn't this a beautiful picture for God calling us sheep? We are not sheep who prefer a shepherd. We are sheep who need a shepherd. Without a shepherd, we overgrow. And if you see a sheep that has no shepherd, it wanders around in the wilderness, too dumb to understand what's happening. And its hair and wool grows over its eyes into its nostrils, and then it dies, often by suffocation. This is the beauty of sheep. 
And God goes, what are my people like? What are my people like? Kind of like this. Is that meant to offend us? A little bit. Just enough for us to go, so you're telling me I need a shepherd. Exactly. That's the whole point. So here's what I want to do with you guys as we um, are having this conversation about sin. Sin is a word that's used a lot in Scripture. It's used to qualify a couple of different things. But here's what I want you to be aware of. Sin is any thought, word, action, or attitude where a person isn't doing what persons were meant to do. That might be a confusing thought. Maybe you've never thought about this to yourself. Why do you exist? Why are you breathing? Okay? I don't, you just answer it in your head. You all have a reason, right? If you've never contemplated this, you need to start tonight. What are you doing here? You certainly weren't a cosmic accident. There's nothing in all of astrophysics or biochemistry that would tell us that you are here by a random chance, even though your biology professors would like to tell you that. It's not the case. It's bad science to think that. That means you're here intentionally. So everything I've made in my life has purpose. Everything I've ever made, right? Maybe I uh, have like an air conditioning unit and I've got a little bit of it that's broken so I construct some little gadget that fits perfectly in to fix my air conditioning unit. And once I've constructed that, that little piece, I put it on and if you ask anyone, what's this thing's purpose? They can point to me because I'm the creator. I am the artist, right? My kids are not good at drawing. I have five of them. Peyton Harbor, Brady, Leo, and Finley. They're in day camp every day, and my son Leo comes home with a picture that he drew, and the picture is terrible. And he walked up to me, and he goes, Daddy, look! And to me, it looks like a spatula. So I said, this thing is so good. This picture brings me joy. I can't believe how wonderful this picture of a... is. Can you? And Leo goes, dad, it's you. And I said, of course it's me. (laughs) Yes. For I have been told many a times that I do resemble different cooking utensils. I myself am a spatula of sorts, right? You like, you kind of got to reel back and going, I thought he was like, maybe they're doing like a unit on the kitchen. I don't know what they were doing. Dad, it's you, right? Now, if Leo, who's three years old, he's built like a tank, he's like, right, he's like, if you see him running around, he's like kind of my mischievous little tank kid, right? Like if all my kids were on an island and there was another person there and that other person got murdered and someone was like, your daughter Harper did it, I would like, you've got the wrong girl. And if they were like, Leo did it, I'd be like, I don't know, maybe. Like, you know, (laughs) probably, it was probably him. Anyway, but... That's his character. So he hands it to me, and he says, Dad, look, it's you. And here's what's ironic. My son has no clue who Monet is. He doesn't know who Manet is. He doesn't know who Van Gogh is. He doesn't know who Salvador Dali is. He doesn't know where any great paint, painter is. He doesn't know who, who Leonardo da Vinci is. He couldn't tell you the painting of the, the, the Last Supper. He knows nothing of art. He knows nothing of art history. He's never been to France. He's never been to Louvre. He's never been to any museum, ever. The extent of his artful knowledge is spatula dad. (laughs) And he walked up to me and he says, dad, this is a picture of you. Now, if you handed that picture to the world-renowned, most famous French art 
critic on planet Earth. And you said, what is this a picture of? How many correct answers are there on the whole planet? Just one. Isn't that funny? My son doesn't need to know beans about any of those art people, and yet the foremost expert on planet Earth on art is not the dictator of what that painting is. The creator of the painting, the writer of the poem, the one who constructs the masterpiece gets to define its purpose, gets to define its beauty, gets to define what it is. So Leo up against a mass of a whole bunch of French art critics and they all go, I don't know, I think it's a ship, right? I don't know, I think it's a ghost. I don't know, I think it's a, a duck-billed platypus. Whatever they say. And they might go, look how the curves move like this. It must be. It's expressionism, it's impressionism, it's postmodernism, it's art. And Leo would go, it's dad. This is dad. And guess what? He's right. And it doesn't matter if everyone else on planet Earth thinks that's a spatula. Because the only opinion on the subject when you're the creator is your own. So when I ask you, what are you doing here? Why do you exist? What is your purpose? You only have one person to ask. Much like Leo, you have a creator. And that creator dictates, as Leo does, your reason, purpose, and belonging. He gets it. So we have to look up and go, hold on. God's everywhere, but this is prototypically how we look at God, right? He's omnipresent. So we could really look anywhere, but we look up because who knows? God, you tell me what I'm doing here. And here's what he would tell you. You were made to be an ambassador of God. Your role and responsibility is this. You are an image bearer, which means when God made mankind, his goal was to make hundreds of millions and billions of little mirrors of himself. That means when he made us, he was, he was so enraptured in the love of the Trinity and pursuant of his own glory for the sake of his name that he made billions of people who their only job was to reflect perfectly the glory and the character of God. That's your job. Your job is that when people look at you, you would say, I am a perfect representation of what the God of the universe is like. That's your job. Your job is to be a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 11-year-old person that says, look at me, listen to me, watch me. And if you do, I'm an image bearer of God. I am just like him. I say what he says. I do what he does. I think how he thinks. I am a little version of him. I am an image bearer of that great God. So what is sin? Sin literally comes from this Greek word hamartia, which means to miss the mark. So when we say that you sinned, we're saying you missed the mark. You missed what mark? What's the mark? The mark is you're supposed to be an image bearer. And whenever we sin, instead of, so whenever we steal, whenever we lie, whenever we cheat, whenever we act immodest, whenever we bully someone, if my job is to show you what God is like, when I steal, am I properly showing you what God is like? No. So what do we call stealing? Sin. We call it missing the mark. Hamartia. 
I have not done my primary responsibility, which is to demonstrate to you what my invisible God is like. So every time we steal, we're saying, God is a stealing God. Uh Uh-oh, you've missed the mark. That's not who he is. Every time we lie, we've said, our God is a deceiving God. Uh Uh-oh, that's not properly image-bearing. That's missing the mark. That's what sin is. Sin is any thought, word, action, or attitude you've ever had that doesn't perfectly demonstrate who God is in your life. That's what sin is. The problem and the crazy thing about sin is the first thing that sin does when it enters our lives, sin is a, it's a disease just like cancer. But cancer is unique in that when you get cancer, a whole bunch of things pop up on your scans and in your blood work, sometimes even as bumps on your skin, because cancer shows you that you have it. Cancer, over time, will tell you that you've got cancer. Why is sin different? Sin is different because it's as dangerous as cancer to the soul. It's terminal, and it will kill you. But here's the irony of, cancer, of, of sin. Sin, the number one way you know you have it is you think you don't. Cancer, at least its grace, is that it tries to tell you you've got it. Your body tries to go, you got cancer, right? You might get sick, your blood work, you might get really weak, you might show some kind of a lump, your scans might. So cancer, when it gets bad enough, it tells you it has it. Sin does the opposite. The first way that you know you have sin is if you're sitting here right now and you're thinking to yourself, this message doesn't apply to me. Because the first thing sin does is it deceives the person who has it to convince them that they don't. So here's what I want to give you as you wrap up. Three things, three lies of Babylon when it comes to, to sin. We've been talking about this all week. Babylon, kingdom of God. Babylon, kingdom of God. Let me give you the three deceptions of sin from Babylon. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. This isn't going to feel good. I don't like saying it, but this is the truth of the Bible. Number one is this. Three Babylonian lies. Number one, this is a lie. Babylon wants to tell you this. The first Babylonian lie is this. You are a good person. And in a culture like ours, culture means it's the, it's the way that we live. It's, um, a culture is what a group of people decides that they're going to encourage, forbid, and give celebrity to. So American culture... We have a culture, which your family has its own little microculture inside of it. Each friends group has their own microculture. You want to know what's an interesting picture of culture is when we worship in here. When Roxy and uh, Ben and the band and they're playing worship music, what you'll find is you'll almost never see a one single person with their hands raised in the crowd of people who don't. What you do find is you find a friends group who all raises their hands together. And then someone will get the bright idea to stand on a chair. And then guess what happens? All their friends stand on chairs, but you never see a person in the middle of a group of people standing on a chair by themselves. Do you want to know why? Because we obsessively want to belong to small cultures around us. Your friends group, it's not ironic that you all decide at the same time to raise your hands, is it? No, it's a learned behavior. You look around and you go, I'd like to fit in. Why are your hands raised? I don't know, Shelby did it. Then Shelby went here, and you're like, oh, we're doing this. Oh, we're doing heavy TV worship. Okay. Oh, I'm carrying this. Oh, now we're, whole, now we're touchdown Jesus. Okay, this is great, right? Yeah, it's a culture. A culture, is, your cabin has a culture. 
Your cabin's culture might be, there are certain things we don't do in the cabin. There are certain things we encourage. And then there's a celebrity in your cabin, right? Every group has a culture to it. Now, American culture is no exception. American culture has things that it encourages, namely, be your own person, be your own king, live your own life, just make sure that you're happy at all times. Happiness is the primary goal of mankind. Just be happy. It doesn't matter who it hurts, make yourself happy. It doesn't matter who you have to step on, make yourself happy. It doesn't matter who you have to break up with or divorce, just make yourself happy. That's the primary reason you exist. That's American culture. American culture also forbids some things. The number one thing that American culture forbids is truth, exclusive truth. The idea that there might be an ultimate truth out there that everyone's accountable to. America forbids that. While we preach tolerance, we are remarkably intolerant of people who are exclusive. Thirdly, we give celebrity to celebrities, the arts, people who are on the forefront of who, people who can make three-pointers and who can uh, write great songs or use chat GPT to write great songs, right? We look at them and we go, you're beautiful, you're rich, you're famous, you can make a leather ball go through a hoop. That's neat. Let's give you millions of dollars because you're contributing so much to society. Thank you. Okay. That's what we do. So now you live in that culture. And as a Christian, we don't believe, in, we don't believe that we're our own king. We also don't believe the idea that all truth is, we believe that truth is exclusive and our only celebrity is Jesus. So guess what? If you're a Christian, you should not fit into American culture. We believe the opposite of what Babylon around us teaches. So one of the lies that you've been told your whole life is you're a good person. Here's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned, missed the mark, and fallen short of the glory of God. You might think to yourself, well, that's not true. My mom says I'm a good person. Here's the problem with your, with your mom's dictation of you being a good person. Your mom is also not a good person, biblically speaking. Now, I know, right? Scandal. I know. You're like, my mom is perfect. She's not. She's not. <laughs> she needs a savior. I promise she needs a savior. I promise. So this is the number one lie of Babylon. And the reason that this lie of Babylon is especially toxic, the reason that this lie in Babylon is especially poignant, especially for our generation, is if you think you're a good person, many of us in here when we come to camp, when people start talking about a need for a savior, if you perceive yourself to be a good person, you think, save me from what? Oh, you must be talking about the bad people. The party kids, the ones who are just here for whatever, the ones who are smoking that, the ones who are doing, this is our problem. If you don't recognize that your standard of being a good person isn't that you're better than the people around you, but in order for you to be a good person in the Bible, you must be better than the moral status of Jesus Christ. You don't get to measure yourself up against your friends or your friends group or Hitler, right? Almost every time I talk to someone and I say, why are you going to go to heaven? They say, I'm a good person. And I say, are you a good person? They say, yes. And I say, well, have you ever stolen anything? They say, yes. I say, have you ever lied? They say, all the time. 
I say, have you ever lusted after someone? The Bible says you're guilty of adultery. Have you ever hated someone? The Bible says you're guilty of murder. So, so far, we've concluded that you are a lying, stealing, adulterous murderer. Do you still think you're a good person? To which they almost always respond, at least I'm not Hitler. Do you recognize that? Listen, the number one deception of sin is to convince the sick person that they don't have it. And when your standard of moral uprightness is, I'm better than Hitler, you've got a long way to go, right? <laughs> like, well, I'm not a genocidal maniac, so I must be okay. That's not going to work. The Bible says this, and this is the condemnation. Listen to this. This is very important. If you're not as perfect as Jesus if you have ever stolen, ever cheated, ever lied, ever had a bad thought, or if you've ever omitted something is also a sin, meaning if God ever told you to do something and you chose not to, if you saw someone in need and you didn't help them, if you were called to help in some case, if you were called to give, if you were called to serve, and you just said no, you've also committed sin. If you've ever done any of those things once in your whole life, you will spend forever separated from God in hell. You need one sin on your record, makes you morally imperfect. The book of James says, if a man stumbles in one part of the law, he's guilty of breaking the whole thing. Because of that, we must come to the conclusion, well then if I'm not a good person, and if I am imperfect, and the standard for getting into heaven is I have to be of the same moral character as Jesus Christ, how in the heck am I ever gonna get into heaven? Hopefully, after this, none of you will ever say the phrase again when someone asks, why are you going to heaven? Hopefully, you'll never say, I'm a good person because Babylon has lied to you. You're not a good person. The gospel begins with the recognition just like any alcoholic or any drug addict must begin with, I am an addict. You must begin with, I recognize that I'm a sinner. You're not a person who sins. You're a sinner. The reason you sin is not because you're a good person and every once in a while you mess up. The reason you sin is it is an absolute outcropping of the broken soul that we have inside of ourselves. We sin because we're sinners, not because we're good people who have small mistakes every once in a while. The Romans chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 says that we are naturally enemies of God apart from him. We want nothing to do with him of our own accord. That's the important first lie of Babylon. The second lie of Babylon is this which many of you will think to yourselves, and I'm here to destroy this idea because the Bible says to destroy every thought that is against Christ. Here's what it, the number two. This is a lie. You might have thought to yourself, all paths lead to God. If you've ever heard the phrase, well, you know, Christians believe in Jesus and Yahweh and the, the Muslims believe in Allah and Muhammad as his messenger and the Mormons believe in Joseph Smith and the, uh, the, the, uh, the angel came down Moroni to give the tablets and they've got the Book of Mormon, but they earnestly seek God and the Muslims, they earnestly seek God and the Christians earnestly seek God and my mom's not a believer at all and she's not religious, but she really tries to be a good person and I know a lot of atheists who do a lot of charitable work, so they're at least trying to be a good person and and in the end, I think God's going to look at all of that and say, you know what? It's all the same to me. 
I'm here to tell you that Jesus annihilates that whole belief system that you just said with one simple verse. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, he uses the definite article, the, three times. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one, categorically, absolutely, no one will get to heaven unless they come through me. Now, philosophically, some of you might be saying, I don't know, man, but let me, let me do a thought experiment with you. Imagine right now that this building caught on fire. It didn't. Don't freak out. Please calm down. And as such, we all recognize that if someone doesn't put out this fire, we're all going to die. So we head for the exits. But as we head for the exits, someone in the back screams, they're all locked. So we start to panic. We start to say our goodbyes. The walls are coming in on us, everything. And then someone runs up to me and they say, wait, didn't they put... Didn't they put like a, a, a safety break glass in case of emergency thing down underneath the stage somewhere? Didn't they install something as like an emergency water system in, the, in, in, in this chapel? Don't we have a solution? And I went, oh yeah, we did. The problem is when they installed it, they also installed the, the stage around it so no one can get into the box unless they're under the age of three. The other problem with the box is that once you push the safety shutoff button, which douses all the flames in here, that box under the stage actually shuts and it kills the person inside. And as we look around the room, we recognize that we're gonna need someone really small and really young to go, but they're gonna need to be a sacrifice for us because they're not gonna make it out alive. And as we look around, you look at me and you say, what are we gonna do? And then here comes my daughter, Finley, running down the aisle. And everyone looks at me when I look at her, and then you look at me, and you are thinking what I'm thinking. She might be our only solution. She might be our only hope. So I take her, and you watch me. You guys understand the sacrifice that must be made. So I look at my daughter, and I say, baby girl, you trust daddy, right? Yes, of course I do. Well, I'm gonna need you to do something. And I, 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 I let me explain to you why this is gonna be our last conversation. But baby, we need to be strong. Remember how much I told you we love these kids? Aren't they the best? We love them so much. And we want them all to know Jesus. And the truth is, a lot of them don't. And in order for them to carry on in life so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus, you're gonna need to go and you're gonna need to sacrifice yourself on their behalf. And she doesn't understand anything I'm saying, but she does trust dad. Knowing that, I'm banking on the fact that she's gonna respond to what I say by obedience. And so I go, baby, I don't need you to understand it. She needs you to go in there and push that button knowing full well what's gonna happen to her. She goes in, she pushes the button, the door closes. You can hear the pain that she's in. It's audible, it's gasping. The water comes on and I'm sitting on the stage in just a pile of my own self, just wrecked. And in order for you to live, she had to perish. And two truths come out of that moment. None of you could ever look at me again and think that I don't love you. And secondly, there is not a man alive that if there was another route that I could take by which I wouldn't have to sacrifice her in order to save you, that I wouldn't have done it. Now imagine this scenario. As the, all the water comes and douses all of the flames, one of you stands up and pushes on that door over there and it's open. But over the door it's, is written the, the words atheism. Over that door is Mormonism. Over that door is agnosticism. Over that door is Buddhism. And over that door is Islam. And as you go around the room, each of you pushes on a different door and you recognize that all these doors actually open. Someone was wrong at the beginning when they said that none of the doors open, but the truth is, if you would have just went and pressed on the doors, they all would have let you out and they all would have saved you. 
And so you walk up to me and you go, Christopher, I'm so sorry, but all of these other paths would have led to our salvation, but I just, we didn't know that, so that your daughter had to die a horrible death, and what if my response was, I know. But you know what? All those other doors were nice, but I also wanted another way of saving people that included the murder of my own child. Now, think for yourself for a second. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sin. The book of Isaiah chapter 53 said it was the will of the Father in order to sacrifice his son. So if you think that all paths lead to God, then you are saying that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, purposely and knowingly killed his son Jesus for kicks and giggles because you could have gotten there from just having an earnest interest in other belief systems. Do you really think that that plays out philosophically? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Just think for yourself through the implications of that idea. That's the second lie of Babylon, that all paths lead to God. If there was a route by which God could have saved without sacrificing his son, he would have, because he is the omnibenevolent, that means all-loving father. He would not sacrifice his son in vain if atheism, agnosticism, Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism, and trying to be a good person would do. Lastly, the last lie of Babylon is this. We believe that, well, if God is loving, then a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. And I actually have to agree with this one. And I agree with it in a really strange way, which is, I think the Bible makes one thing perfectly clear. Our modern culture has kind of done away with the idea of hell. We don't like it. It's uncomfortable. But let me explain it to you this way. Every one of us here, maybe you want nothing to do with God, but I got a newsflash for you. Right now, you have everything to do with God. If you're sitting in here, and you say, I hope I never meet God. I hope I'm never around God. I hope I never interact with God. I hope I'm never in the presence of God. I hope, I hope, I hope I have nothing to do with him. I gotta tell you something that might upset you. You're with him right now. He is in this place. He is omnipresent. He is with you. Not only that, everything that you enjoy in life, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows, which means imagine if you made a list right now of everything in your life that you enjoy, starting with the really fundamental things. You enjoy the ability to make your own decisions. You enjoy the ability of having comfort. You enjoy family. You enjoy laughter. You enjoy joy. You enjoy sanity. You enjoy different kind of comforts. You enjoy food. You enjoy the satisfaction of hunger. You enjoy the satisfaction of thirst. These are all good things. What does the Bible say? The Bible says every good gift is from God. Do you want to know what the Bible says the reason you have all those gifts? Is because God is trying to beckon you and woo you into knowing him by every good and perfect gift that you have. So the problem is when you say, I want nothing to do with God, God has designed a place called hell where he is absent. So you go, well, that sounds great. I want to be in a place where there's no God. I don't want any rules. I don't want any. The problem with that is this. Everything about your life that you enjoy you are cur- is currently on loan to you because God is everywhere in this moment with you all at once. Imagine a scenario then, if every good and perfect gift comes from God, what would a place be like if God wasn't there? Easy everything we enjoy would be taken away as well. And you would go, well, this place sucks. Do you want to know why? Because God's not there. The only reason your life is livable right now is because God is in with and under everything that you do. So what would hell be like? Hell is simply a place where God is not, which means if God brings comfort and joy and family and laughter and sanity and knowledge and light and 
satisfaction of hunger and satisfaction of thirst and comfort, if that's what God brings, then hell is a place where God is not, which means there is no comfort, there is no peace, there is no sanity, there is no, there is no satisfaction of desire, there is only appetite, there is only more wanting and more wanting, and you don't recognize that right now the only satisfaction to all of those things is because God is trying to woo you with his loving kindness to bring you to repentance. Hell is not a place that God sits up there as some royal judge and goes, that's it, I'm sick of it, I'm gonna punish you forever. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. While our sin must be punished, hell does do that sufficiently. C.S. Lewis puts this really well. He says, what if it's just the case that God gives everyone exactly what they asked for on their last day? Don't call God a hateful God because he gives everyone what they want. You see, if you finish this life saying, I want more God, well, that's great. There's a place called heaven where you'll be with him forever and enjoy his presence for all eternity. And if you go, um, I don't want to be with God. I want to be away from God. Then what if God simply says, very well, I'll give you exactly what you want too. The problem is in that moment, we don't recognize that everything that we've ever enjoyed came from him. Hell is ultimately a place where people who want nothing to do with God get exactly what they want forever. So every cartoon of this like Satan runs hell, torture chamber, I think that's all fictitious, but I think it's worse than that because you could never recognize the torment, pain, and torture of a place where God chose to withhold his presence from and that's what hell is. These are the lies of Babylon, threefold. I don't want you walking out of here going, I think I'm a good person. I'll, I'll, I'll argue my own case in front of the great judge. I also don't want you walking out of here going, well, you guys are Christians. I believe in a different belief system, but as long as we're earnestly seeking it, we're gonna all end up in the same place. That's a Babylonian lie. And thirdly, don't start to think to yourself that because God is love, that he isn't also justice, that he isn't also jealousy, that he isn't also wrath. God's character is always all of those things, and our rebellion against God has a price tag to it that must be paid. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And this is where we end tonight with this conundrum. How can we, who each and every one of us have sinned, not just once, but repeatedly every day, and the only, the guest list to heaven is only one name long, and that name is Jesus Christ. So if the guest list to heaven is only one name long, and it's Jesus, and hell is where everybody else goes who isn't the character of Jesus, then how in the heck, is there any hope for us? Is there any help for us? Is there any way that we can be saved from this? Tomorrow night, we're gonna talk about the gospel of Jesus and it is the most powerful truism that God has made a way for us to get into heaven even though the guest list is only one name long and it's not yours. So we get to complete the story of our gospel and salvation tomorrow night. But for tonight, I want you to wrestle with those lies. Which ones are you believing wholeheartedly? Which ones do we need to change that Babylon has inserted into our heart? Let's pray. Jesus, we are prone to wander. We are prone to deception. We are prone to lies. Some of us may have walked into this room tonight thinking to ourselves, well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, I know, that ever, I know that God's gonna be cool with me as long as I'm, well, I know that maybe all different paths lead to, or I don't really think that hell's a real place. God, I, I hope that you would just convict them through the power of your Holy Spirit of these truths. Hell is very real. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life is very true. 
And the notion that we are good people completely nullifies what scripture says, which is that we are sinners in desperate need of a savior. But God, this is just where the good news of the gospel begins, it's not where it ends. The good news of the gospel, of the salvation of mankind, begins with us in a state of saying, I think I'm sick, I think I do have cancer, and I think I need some kind of help. I need some external help. I can't save myself, my friends can't save me. Where does my help come from? So God, we look up to heaven. We eagerly and expectantly wait the answer to the question of how we can possibly be saved when we are rebels against you and the guest list to heaven is only one name long and that name is not Chris Hilkin and it's not anyone else in this room. How are we to be saved? Would you put that question on our conscience? Would you make us eager to answer it through the truth of your gospel? It's your name we pray, amen.